Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. City Budget Day. We had the provincial budget last week, the federal budget this week. City Budget Today. If you are, if you are not feeling tapped out by the tax increase as well, I don't know if we can find any other budgets for you to, to deal with. We're, we've, we've done with them now. But today, uh, City Council voting to pass a budget that was reduced. It was supposed to be 6.7%. That's what it came into the day as. Got down to 5.85%. And then uh, the votes. In the end, uh, voting yes on the budget, Andrea Horvath, Maureen Wilson, Cameron Kretsch, Narinder Nan, Tammy Wang, Esther Paul, John Paul Danko, Craig Kassar, Alex Wilson, and Ted McMeekin voting no on the budget, Matt Francis, Tom Jackson, Brad Clark, Jeff Beattie, Mark Tattison, and Mike Spadafora. One of the people who you just heard his name there, he voted yes ultimately on this one, but I know leading into this that there had been question. He was saying anyway that he had been uncertain about where he was going to go on this. Uh, Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, who joins me now. Councillor, thank you for this. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. So uh, maybe a month ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was, you and I chatted, and uh, you at that time had said you really were uncertain where you were going to go on this budget. You really weren't sure if you could support it. You ultimately voted yes. What made you decide that was the way to go? I was undecided, and a number of my colleagues were also undecided up until about 1.30 yesterday afternoon. Um, so I think what, what was different about this budget for me than the previous ones is before we would start at a number and then we would work as a council to, to reduce that number, reduce that number, and we would get to a final budget that was uh, lower than where we started. And this budget, it was going the opposite direction. We started at 5.4%, we reduced it a bit, and then somebody would add something, and all of a sudden it would be 6%, and then 65 And we ended up at seven and a, seven point, sorry, 6.7%, uh, which was, as of yesterday, the budget that we would have passed. And, and I think a lot of my colleagues were feeling the exact same thing as me, that hearing from the residents um, that a 6.7% tax increase was just way too much, um, that it wasn't going to be accepted by residents. Um, so, you know, we really had to sharpen the pencil. Uh, and, and through Mayor Horvath's leadership, uh, we were able to work with staff, and, and, and she was able to identify an additional $10 million uh, that was cut from the budget today. And that was, uh, I think, enough to get us down below 6% to 5.8. That gave us uh, enough of a confidence that there is some financial responsibility here and um, be able to pass a budget that, uh, that we've, you know, we're not obviously happy about that level of tax increase, but that it's in line with inflation and it does include some really important services. One of the things that could have happened today, when I look at the final vote, uh, it was 10 to 6. However, you had been undecided, and I know that uh, a few weeks ago, Esther Pauls had also said really not leaning towards voting yes. If the two of you had voted no, it would have been 8-8, eight, eight, which would have been a defeated budget. I don't think that's ever happened in the city of Hamilton before. It was that close to this being into new territory. It's really unprecedented to, to have anything besides a unanimous budget because we've spent months uh, on this budget process working to this point. Uh, so usually by this point, there's unanimity around council that, yes, we all support the budget and, uh, you know, it's going to pass almost unanimous, if not unanimous. 
like I said, this was a very different scenario where even today, uh, some councillors were adding additional tax increase items uh, or, or attempting to uh, to the budget. Thankfully, those were voted down. Um, and, and I think that was the question for me, uh, you know, and in, in speaking to a number of my colleagues, like I said, as of yesterday afternoon, this budget would have failed in its entirety. Thankfully, the mayor was able to step in and, uh, you know, through her leadership, uh, provide some uh, course forward that uh, ultimately was uh, was supported. That said, um, 5.85 is still much higher than it's been for a long, long time. Uh, does this now become the norm? Does this become the thing that we get used to or even higher? I know that one of your colleagues, Cameron Kretsch, uh, was on Twitter before the budget came out and it was a long string. But one of the things is I think we will miss out on bold investments to address our changing climate, to improve transit substantially and create new services to provide supports to those living without housing, food and water. But there's next year and the year after that, that, I mean, that's a, that almost sounds like get ready because we didn't get to spend a lot now, but that's what I'm reading it, that we can do that next year or the year after. Is this now the norm? Uh, that, that's my concern. And I think looking forward, uh, when we're seeing some of the provincial downloading, we're seeing some of the pressures, um, in particular areas like asset management and infrastructure, where there are enormous budget pressures coming. Um, you know, my biggest concern is that, and, and this was shared today as well, that future years are going to be, you know, instead of starting at two, three percent, we'll be starting at you know five point eight, five point nine, um, and and that becomes the norm. And and I think that's not acceptable for me. I think that's not acceptable for uh, I hope the majority of council. Um, but I, I think you know it, it takes some time to kind of as a new council really understand what your priorities and your strategic directions are. We're working on that now. And I'm hopeful that future budgets, there'll be a little bit more um, balance between, well, this is the thing that we want to do, we think it's right, and the ability of taxpayers to pay, uh, you know, for those uh, services. Because in Hamilton, that is one of the biggest uh, issues that we have is that uh, income uh, rates in Hamilton are lower than our comparators. And, you know, we really do have to consider the ability of our residents to actually pay these increases uh, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that uh, that are, you know, faced with the bill. Well, and thank you for saying that because one of the things that's, that I think seems to get lost in this is when somebody says, well, it's just $300 per household what this increase is, that's fine, but it's not in a vacuum. That's not just, it's not like we have a $1,000 tax and we're adding 300 this year and then we go back to where we were. That 300 is added to the money that was added last year, and then next year will be added to that 300 again. So it's not, saying it's just 300 is is not really fair. It's not really accurate to what people are being tagged with. No, it's not. And it's also the number of employees that are added. Uh, so I think today we added more than 45 full-time staff members. As Councillor Francis pointed out, that's more full-time uh, staff members than all of last term added to the budget. Um, you know, and, and once those are employees are employed by the city of Hamilton, they're unionized and, you know, they, they just carry over from year to year. So when we're adding staff, when we're adding those rates, and it is, it is um, misleading when you're only looking at, oh, well, you know, for the average household, it's only, you know, this much of an increase. But then next year's an increase, and the year after that's an increase. And that's that's where it, it becomes a cumulative effect. And at the end of the day, if you're a senior on a fixed income, 
you know, an increase of $300 can mean that you're going to be able to remain in your house or not. Well, and again, that $300 for this year may not be a thing, but you're, you've got a four-year term. At this rate, that's four years from now, that means the, the increase is $1,200 a year. Now you're getting into real money. Yeah, and, and again, I, I think that's, for some of us, that's, that's our biggest concern is that we're kind of setting the new normal. And, and I would feel a lot better about this budget if I didn't think that future years were going to be um, as high or, or, or if not more. But the fact is that the challenges that we're facing as a city right now with housing and homelessness, we just had a report that, uh, you know, just to address housing and homelessness would cost an extra, I think it was uh, 30 to $60 million a year. Um, all of those pressures are still there next year, along with provincial downloading, along with new pressures that we might not even know about now. Um, and, and the fact is, is, you know, the taxpayers are at their limit right now that, you know, they can't afford to put gas in the car. They can't afford groceries. Um, and then adding on to that, I, I think we need a little bit more, um, you know, consideration of, of what this means to the taxpayers that pay our salaries. It is uh, 5.85%. As I say, it works out to about $260 this year. But keep in mind, that's, uh, that's, that's a cumulative thing now. That will keep building. Uh, John Paul Danka, Ward 8 Counselor, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We had a, uh, a report that came out in the city um, last week, late last week, and it was about discipline, really. Discipline suspensions at Hamilton uh, Hamilton Public Schools, the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board announced that there was a sharp rise in 20-day suspensions for all kinds of things, from weapon possession, sexual assault, physical assault, incidents motivated by prejudice, hate, bias. And I think most people reading that would say, uh, that's not good. Um, doesn't sound like things are going particularly well in schools. Well, the school board talked this up to better training of principals and vice principals. And yet when you realize that we are talking about hundreds of these cases, hundreds of kids who are being suspended, whether it's because of better training or whatever, you do have to ask yourself, what is going on? Paul Bennett is the director of Schoolhouse Institute. He is Canada's leading educational expert. He joins me now. Uh, Paul, you've written about this. You've been talking about this for some time now. Is this, this is not just Hamilton, but this is something that's going on all across the country. Everywhere you look across Canada, there's an outbreak of violence. It's spiked after the pandemic. And we're beginning to see what I describe as the bitter harvest of two or three years of disrupted education. It's manifested in um, violent acts. And as I've written and talked about across the country, it's, uh, it's as simple as this. Fists and knives are more prevalent in schools than ever before. And it seems to have been uh, accentuated and made worse by the pandemic disruptions. Uh, there, By the way, for the numbers, uh, the story says, the report says overall 3,902 students were suspended in 2021-22. Um, I mean, it's it's a staggering number. When I was in school, there were suspensions. There's no question. I don't want you or I to be just sitting here as the old men, but there were suspensions. People did stuff wrong. The numbers, though, it was never like this. I mean, so I guess the, the, the question is, is it really more bad discipline 
is it really more problems or is it a less tolerance for it so we're just suspending people more? The irony is that's not supposed to be happening. Since 2008, uh, your province, uh, Ontario, led the country in abolishing uh, what is called zero tolerance policies with an explicit commitment to reducing suspensions and expulsions. And I've tracked the pattern across the country, well, across the province and then the country. And from 2008 on to um, 2019, there was a dramatic decrease in suspensions. I will say this, that your, um, your one school district there, the Hamilton-Wentworth School District, has always had more suspensions than other places. That is borne out in the data. So what you're seeing is an anomaly. Uh, you would be shocked at how few suspensions there are in some of those other uh, jurisdictions. And here's what I've learned in studying this over quite a few years, is um, you have to really critically examine data of that type because there are huge variations in the application of student discipline policies. Well, and, and certainly in this area, people here will remember there was a, a child, it was a tragic, tragic story, Devin Selvey, who was stabbed a student outside of school, and there was allegations, there was talk, not even allegations, there was bullying involved, and you wonder, has that simply made people at the schools far more sensitive to these kind of things, so, so actions are much more likely to be taken than there would be necessarily someone where something like this hasn't happened? Uh, Scott, I think there's a simpler explanation. The Hamilton-Wentworth Board is the board that's most inclined to suspend students and is not representative of the others. What's going on is it's more typical of what's going on in, say, uh, Thames Valley Board in um, London in particular, where um, everyone, including the uh, ETFO, President Craig Smith and others are saying that the discipline is too soft. The teachers are um, are tired of reporting kids to the office. Nothing happens and are very critical of what is called the soft discipline approach. And it's called soft progressive discipline. So uh, what has been really happening across the country is the spike of post-COVID violence has exposed just how ineffective the student behavior policy and practices are. And you know what's fascinating? After 15 years, whether the, the suspensions are up or not, it's time to reevaluate the, the uh, student behavior policies mm. in Ontario because they're not working. Whether kids are being uh, suspended in huge numbers or whether teachers are afraid to report these suspensions or whether parents are being told that they're exaggerating. Here's what um, here's what Sarah Murray was told in uh, in Ottawa after her son was beaten up and came home with need in the head. And uh, he kept it quiet. And she said, what's wrong with you? And uh, she called the school. And the answer was, well, we don't want to talk about that um, because it would be a traumatic experience. So more common out there is a schools a school systems covering this up. Um, but I will say this, since I wrote the front page piece in the National Post, believe it or not, it was a month ago, it appeared on the front page of the National Post, in blazing headlines. 
uh, it's uh, the uh, culture of silence has been broken. I've I've personally tracked about ten or fifteen major stories uh, everywhere, and then the stabbing uh, at uh, C.P. Allen High School down here. The biggest story it ended up on CNN, Reuters, uh, and uh, it's all of a sudden everyone's talking about violence in schools. So it's not exclusively Hamilton, but I would say that your particular situation is a little different than others. Uh, and the other, the flip side of this, so some people might say, well, Hamilton sounds out of control. The flip side you could take, I suppose, is there's a lot of people who would say, as you've just alluded to, for a long time, it seems teachers have been unable to do anything. I mean, and no one's proposing bringing back the strap or something, but that teachers have been essentially helpless. You can't do anything about this. Well, at least here, you've got a school board that is saying, no, 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 if you're going to misbehave, we're going to send you home and we're going to suspend you. Some people might say that's a great thing. Well, I can tell you that there are a lot of secondary school teachers in Ontario who wish they were in a board like that. Because the reverse is the pattern there. Right, right. They're under a lot of stress. And even, you know, when you get Craig Smith, who's the leader of the uh, elementary teachers union in, in Thames Valley, he, he says it's gone too far. This pendulum has swung. Now uh, kids are free to do anything they want. They feel liberated to um, basically call out a teacher, swear at them. Um, they punch in class. They uh, There's all kinds of concealed weapons. This this is what's going on. In Toronto, in fact, the administrators have come out in, in concert and saying that uh, violence is running wild in the Toronto school system. So um, I think the reverse is true in other places. And I, I think you probably, as a Hamiltonian, you probably think, well, you know, uh, I don't think you deviated as much from the, the traditional uh, approaches as some of these other boards. Now, having said that, uh, my uh, colleague, uh, Tracy Viancourt, is the leading expert on uh, teen mental health and uh, bullying in Canada. She's at the University of Ottawa. And uh, she and I agree on this, that, um, you know, we need more parental, we need more adult um, um, eyes on what's going on in schools. But it's common knowledge in secondary schools in Ontario and elsewhere that washrooms are dangerous places. Mm. It's a, it's a, we got to run. It's a, it's a stunning thing for me anyway. When I see the numbers, 3,900 students suspended. And again, you can say, well, that's good that the school board and the schools are cracking down. And, and I would actually agree with that. I would think that it's good that the schools are saying we're not going to take it. But the fact that they would need to have suspensions for 3,900 offenses in school, as I say, when, when we were back in school and it wasn't all that long ago, boy, it, it seems like times have really changed. Uh, Paul Bennett the Schoolhouse Institute. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably know that tomorrow evening, Thursday evening, the Blue Jays get their season going. It, it, spring is here. We have arrived at spring, which uh, is a lovely thought, even though uh, it may not feel exactly that way. But let's talk a little bit of baseball because last year at this time, we were told, we believed that, as I think uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. said, that we had seen the preview. Now it was time for the main event. Well, hmm, we didn't quite see the main event. Is this year for the Blue Jays going to be the main event? Mike Wilner, calling us with the Toronto Star podcast host. We'll hear about that in a few minutes. Uh, joins us now. Mike, how are you? 
I'm doing all right, thanks. How are you? I am well. I am great. But as a for for the fans out there, let's go to that question first. Is this year when we are going to see the main event? Is this the year that it comes together for the Blue Jays? Well, I mean, they should be in the playoffs again. I think they're going to win the division. But uh, you know, baseball is um, baseball is a as much as people say the Stanley Cup is the hardest trophy to win, and it is for the the grind of it, baseball, the World Series, is the toughest to win because there's just so much randomness in baseball, and so many teams are separated by such small margins. So, um, I, you know, we should all be very disappointed if the Blue Jays don't make the playoffs because they're clearly one of the top six teams in the AL at least, if not one of the top two or three. Uh, but beyond that is is a coin flip. Once you get in, you've got about the same chance as everybody else, and the Phillies and, and Padres showed that last year. So, you know, when Vlad said last year was the preview, this year's the movie, um, we got a pretty good movie. They 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 made it to the playoffs, and then it, it stunk after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, sometimes the sequel's better than the original. Well, the other thing, and it's to your point, I think about how baseball is just it's it's a it's so unknown. I don't know. I mean, the Yankees coming into last season, I don't know how many people said they were going to be an absolute powerhouse. I think people I do. thought they did. You you thought they were because it was no, like no. I can tell you how many people thought they were going to be an absolute oh, powerhouse. Nobody. Yeah, they, they the were. They were okay. Right. The consensus was the Yankees were going to finish third and be on the bubble for the playoffs, and then. You know, they were on a 120 win pace in the second yeah. week of July. And so when you look at that, you you say that that's the random, I don't know if random is the right word because it's not exactly out of con, out of people's control, but it's the it's the unpredictability of baseball that if things start to go really right, it can go really right. If things don't go really right, it can go very wrong. Um, the Blue Jays, though, seem to, again, have the pieces that at least the possibility is there for things to go Yankees like as in last year for the Yankees. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's a special, special thing, right? It doesn't happen very often where a team is so good for two or three months that they absolutely just run away with things. Uh, you know, the, the tigers, we, we still talk about the tigers. 85, 84, 84. Yeah, 84. right. 84 where they were 35 and five because it happens so rarely the Yankees, um, Outdid the Tigers last year, not just over the first 40 games. They weren't 35 and five, but again, by uh, they were still on a record pace for single season wins in July, winning more than 75% of their games. So um, it's a, that's an exceptionally rare thing that happens when a team will run away and hide with a good division. Um, but so, I, you know, I don't think they're going to do that. Um, I think that that they're gonna, you know, it's it's as as exciting as a good team is, and this is a very good team, and I'm picking them to win the AL East. Um, you know, we still have to remember that um, if you win six times and lose four times out of every ten games, that's ninety eight wins, right? That's an amazing season. Um, and, and you're still losing four out of 10. So, uh, as you know, the, it feels to me and, and maybe I, it, it's from years of hosting the post game show. Um, it feels to me that P- 
people expect that when a team is really good, they're going to win every game right, or they're going right, to win right. most games or they're going to win, you know, four out of five games. And that just doesn't happen. So, yeah, no matter how good they are, um, they're they're going to lose some games. They're, you're not going to turn it on and it's going to be six to nothing in the fourth inning every night and they're going to roll to, to 130 wins. Uh, but they are going to be very, very good. And I don't want to sound, you know, I don't want to sound fanboyish, but I mean, it just the, the the things that they have, if things go their way, I guess is what I was saying. Like with the comparison to the Yankees, that they they have the people. It seems that if they produce like they have the potential to produce, this team could be really good. I mean, you, Kikuchi is an example. I mean, disaster last year has looked great in spring, which means absolutely nothing. Although it's better than looking terrible in the spring, I suppose. Yep. But you know, he continues this into the season. Man, there's there's a, a huge change from last year. If if Jose Barrios can find something again, as opposed to being the disaster he was last year, there's something that and, and has the potential to, certainly. There's something. If if Gosman and Manoa can continue doing what they did last year, like the the pieces are there that this thing could be really good. Oh, absolutely. I mean, no, the pieces are there that this thing should be really good. That's that's the difference. You know, we've had so many years of of Blue Jay watching where if this goes well and if this happens and if everything everybody stays healthy and if and if and if, then they have a chance to contend for a playoff spot. This team is um, they're a playoff team. Period. And if Kikuchi holds on to this, uh, and if Barrios bounces back then they're going to win 105 games. That's that's the difference. If Kikuchi, look, Kikuchi and Barrios had terrible years last year, although it should be noted that the Blue Jays won more games that Jose Barrios started than they did with any other starting pitcher on the mound. And that's not just because they bailed him out all the time. They bailed him out a couple of times, but it's because two-thirds of his starts were really good. The one-third of his starts that were not really good were just uh, abysmal. And that led to those horrible numbers. But, um, you know, even with Kikuchi and Barrios both being two of the worst starting pitchers in the league last year, they were the top wildcard team, right? They mm-hmm. finished with 92 wins and um, had the had the third best record in the league for almost the entire season. Cleveland passed them, I think, with like four days to go. Um, so all that stuff went wrong and they still won 92 games and, you know, now they have an incredibly better defense, which is going to lead to the pitchers being a lot better. Uh, and I think at the end of the season, a lot of people will just say, Hey, wow, those pitchers really had have way better years and, and won't realize how many, uh, singles, and doubles, Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermaier took away how many times they kept runners from going first to third or stopped runners from scoring from first on on doubles. Um, and it'll it'll be that quiet contribution that doesn't show up in the box score except in the pitcher's ERAs and the one-loss record. But uh, this is a team that, um, you know, even even if, the, if Barrios and Kikuchi have terrible years again, so they win 92 again instead of winning 98. <laughs> What, something that a lot has been made of this spring has been the attitude around the team and things, for example, like the home run jacket going away and 
Uh, Teoscar Hernandez being traded, maybe, you know, some say not as not the most serious guy. Maybe the Blue Jays needed to be more focused, more serious, less just fun. Do you make anything of that? Does that make any real difference or is that just a, a personality change and whatever? I wonder if it's more about John Schneider having uh, the the team now and, and running uh, camp the way he wants to, to run it and bringing in guys like Belt and Kiermaier. Um, you know, I'm less, you know, people sort of concentrate on, on what happened in the corner of the dugout and the barrio with, uh, with Guerrero and Guriel and Teoscar Hernandez all just having a good time together all the time. I don't see anything wrong with that. The issue for me was that there was a lack of focus on the field sometimes from Guriel and Hernandez. We saw the occasional brain lock. Um, you know, the trying to make a hero throw or throwing to the wrong base or just uh, whiffing on a fly ball or, or something like that. Um, there was a there was more than more often than there should have been. There was a lack of court awareness uh, from those two, from Guriel and Hernandez. I don't think they had to go, but I do think bringing in Kiermaier and Varsho and bringing in Brandon Belt really help. And having Whit Merrifield for a whole year really help um, the a focus on the little things. Kiermaier's got World Series experience. Belt's won two World Series. Varsho's dad was a manager in, in the major leagues. Um, you know, I think that's that's the more important stuff than the throwing sunflower seeds around and <laughs> hanging out in the corner of the dugout and, and laughing all the time. I, I, I don't buy into the whole uh, mentality that when you're losing in a game, you should look angry on the bench. That doesn't help with anything. Um, stay loose and stay relaxed and you can come back and win a ball game. You've talked about the defense and, and it's a, it's a huge point and the pitching and, and that kind of thing that's going to help. One of the, one of the things that we haven't seen, maybe you have, I don't know if you've been down to the the dome as these renovations have been going on, but I mean, the, the dimensions are going to change a bit. There's talk that, you know, it's going to be, it's already a hitters park that it's going to be a little easier potentially even for hitters. Does that, uh, so when you're working, when you're a team that has added to your defense and added to your pitching, and then the dimensions maybe become a little easier for hitters, does that help the Jays net or does that hurt the Jays net? Um, I think it helps because they're a power hitting team, right? I, I think that um, bringing the fences in as they have, uh, I've seen the early construction and I guess next week we'll go see it before the, the place opens, uh, before the home opener. Um, it's going to be, the, the wall's going to be higher where the fence is shorter. So only those like, really high fly balls that got caught at the warning track are going to wind up going out, but I think there are going to be a few more of those. Um, Matt Chapman, I can remember, hit a bunch of warning track flyouts, and those are going to be homers or doubles now. Um, but not a lot of this, not a lot of these guys hit, hit wall scrapers right there. They were full measure for most of their home runs. Um, the new, the new nooks and crannies, well, not so much nooks and crannies, but uh, but uh, weird angles and curved walls and strange bounces. Having great outfielders is going to help with that a lot. 
Um, I think anytime you improve your outfield defense to the extent that the Blue Jays have, I mean, this is the best defensive outfield this team has ever had in in its history, and it's the best defensive outfield in in baseball. Um, so, in a vacuum, anytime you do that, you're getting a lot better. But you're also adding a bunch of home runs, and and you know, for as as many as home as many home runs as they'll lose with Teoscar Hernandez. Um, they'll match him with Dalton Varsho. Varsho hit 27 last year playing in Arizona, which is a, a neutral offensive ballpark, leaning pitcher friendly. But he was also in the NL West where, um, you know, Dodger Stadium, San Francisco, San Diego, they're all caverns. So his home run numbers are going to pump up. So, uh, you know, I think in, in the overall, um, all the changes total will result in a net positive. You are saying this is the best defensive outfield, better than when George Bell played, better than when Candy Maldonado played, better than when Mookie Wilson was out there. <laughs> it's interesting that you would bring up George Bell and Candy Maldonado. Neither of them were good. I was trying to think of who were the worst fielders I could think of over the course of time, but I mean, Mookie I mean, was all right. He was old by the time he got here. He was, he was, you know, yeah. he was a decent player, but he can no, still move. This, but yeah, this, people think of Bell Barfield and Mosby as like the greatest outfield that the Blue Jays have ever had. And, and it was offensively. offensively. George Bell was a terrible left fielder. You know, they, they've never had a group of three that's this good. They've got three center fielders playing in the outfield now, two of whom are the among the best defensive players in the game uh, in Varsho and Kiermaier. And I'm interested to see what Springer looks like in a corner. But it... It's uh, it, it is absolutely the best defensive outfield they've ever put together. One of the other big stories, and and I know it's been talked about over the spring, um, but mostly it's been talked about and uh, talking about the the pitch clock. Mostly it's been talked about by weird things that happen where the batter isn't quite ready yet or whatever. But this is going to, I would think, as the year goes on. I mean, baseball's the grind. We talk about it, and you get into the dog days, the really hot days of summer. This is potentially going to have an impact on pitchers do you not think that there are going to be guys that really excel with this that it gets them going and keeps them moving and gets their rhythm going and other guys that it wears them out i don't know that it's going to really wear anybody out i think that that over time i think we'll discover and you know look you you work in radio i worked in radio forever over time we'll discover just how long 20 seconds is because 20 seconds can be an awfully long time Eight seconds can be an awfully long time. From the, the point of time where the hitter has to be alert to the pitcher with eight seconds on the clock, those eight seconds can take forever. So I, I think pitchers will get used to that. They'll learn that. They'll find a rhythm, and they'll be fine. I think with uh, some of them, I, I believe it's already helped Kikuchi. You know, he's he's talked about that too. He doesn't have as much time to think as he used to, he just has to go uh, get the ball and, and pitch. And it's really, it, it's not that much of a rush, but it sort of does, does keep you on task a little bit. Um, so I, I think it's going to help more than it hurts uh, in the overall for pitchers and for hitters. Do you like it? Having seen it, do you like it generally? Oh God, I love it. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I don't understand how anyone can have an issue with it. Um, you know, and I hear all these old men yelling at cloud saying, ah, this is a game. The only game that's never had a clock, but this, it's not a clock like football or hockey or basketball. You still have to get 27 outs. Um, there's, there's no running out the clock when you have a lead. It's just the fact that you, you have to throw the damn ball and you have to get in the box. And 
um, you know, it, it, it's funny that so many of the older fans are upset about it because what it does is it takes baseball back to where it was 30 or 40 yeah, years ago. Yeah, you're right. 100%. When people didn't screw around so much and, and when games were over in 230 or 240. The beauty of it is you're not losing any baseball. There is no baseball that has been lost with the addition of this pitch timer. What you're losing is hitters calling timeout after every pitch to adjust their gloves and adjust their belt and kick dirt out of their cleats and, and adjust their helmet and hitters taking a minute and a half to walk up so they can listen to their walk-up music and pitchers stalking around the mound for an hour or throwing over to first base seven times. Uh, all that's gone, and that's wonderful because none of that was needed. Um, it's it, it really is good. And honestly, I've seen – I don't know. I was down there for a week here, five days there, so I was probably at eight or nine games in spring training, and three or four of them were like, man, this thing is really dragging. And they wound up being 245. Mm. So it, it's, uh, it changes your perspective in a hurry. One thing I really hope that it changes or brings back and, and it may, or, you know, coaches tend to figure things out and, and, you know, we've seen it in hockey a million times, they change the rules. And for a brief time, everything is wide open. You go, man, this is great. And then the coaches discover how to stifle it. I really hope that the fact that pitchers now have to get the ball moving brings the stolen base back into the game a lot more than it has been for the last couple of decades. Well, it's the, it, it will, I think. I think the bigger bags will help because it's now like six to eight inches closer to get to, from base to base. And the fact that pitchers can only throw over twice during an at-bat. Um, if they can throw a third time, but they better pick you off. Otherwise, it's a box. So that cat and mouse game is going to change quite a bit. I don't think we're going to see anybody steal 100 bases anymore. I think that the um, the math has been done on what that does to your body uh, and and how much a, of a, a toll it takes. But I do think we're definitely going to see, I mean, maybe, maybe even twice as many stolen base attempts as we've seen in the recent past. Which is great because that's sort of a dying art. I mean, we don't need Ricky Henderson or Tim Raines, but I mean, it's just be nice to have that back in play. Um, Mike Wilner, the, uh, not only a columnist with the Toronto star, also the deep left field podcast that's still going on this year. Of course, it's still going on this year. It is Where? bigger, better, and better than ever. And, Abs and, uh, Excellent. Where will people find that? Because I know they'll want to. Where do people find the Deep Left Field podcast? I guess, I mean, wherever wherever you get your podcasts. If you have an iPhone, you've got a podcast icon on it. Just click on that and search Deep Left Field or go to... Uh, um, I don't, I don't quite know how it works on uh, Androids, but you can find <laughs> it on Spotify. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, wherever finer podcasts are available... And this episode coming out on Thursday, <coughs> pardon me, coming out on Thursday, the opening day extravaganza, we will have Alec Manoa and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and George Springer, Jordan Romano and Danny Jansen. They're all going to be on this week. So it's it's a, a pretty amazing episode. Uh, Mike Wilner, always appreciate you doing this. Thanks for it. You bet. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.